Mark 9. If you found it, why don't you stand with me and we'll read together God's word. As Clinton has said time and again, we have reached the mountaintop of Mark. The first eight chapters ascend to this great moment where Peter confesses Christ as Lord. And the rest of the book, chapters 9 through 16, it's as if we're ascending the hill back to Calvary. And that's precisely where we find ourselves in Mark 9, beginning in verse 30. Jesus and his coterie are descending from the Mount of Transfiguration, and they will surely soon make their way to Mount Calvary. And we're going to catch them on this journey, and you're going to notice that Jesus has a mission in mind. There is a method to his madness. There is a, there's, there's something going on in this journey, and we're going to find out what that is beginning in verse 30 of Mark 9. Hear now the words of our God. They went on from there, and they passed through Galilee. And he did not want anybody to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They're going to kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he's going to rise. But they didn't understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And as they came into Capernaum, He was in the house, and Jesus asked them, What were you guys discussing on the way? But they were silent. Because on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So Jesus sat down, and he called the twelve to him, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And then he takes this child, puts it in the midst of them, and Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, You see, whoever receives one such child in my name, only receives me. And whoever receives me, doesn't just receive me, but but him who sent me. Would you join me as we pray, and let's ask God to help us make sense of this text. Father in heaven, you know how often I feel like a hypocrite when I preach. And there are a few texts that have made me feel more hypocritical than this. So I'm asking that as I speak your words that you would convict my heart and all who can hear my voice. May we submit ourselves to your word and thus be changed by it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, the older you get, the more you learn it to be true, that looks can be deceiving. Can they not? Things aren't always as they appear. On Friday, January 12th, 2007, there was a 39-year-old man dressed in a t-shirt and a ball cap standing in the substation called the L'Enfant Plaza subway station in metropolitan Washington, D.C. Just before 8 a.m., this man pulls out a violin and begins to serenade the passers-by. A security camera, a hidden camera caught that in about a 45-minute span of time, nearly 1,100 people passed by this violinist as he played in this station 
And of the 1,100 passers-by, only seven slowed down enough to be said they were stopping to listen. And of the 1,100 passers-by, that man only collected $30 and about 17 cents in offering. Which some of you might be thinking, well, Kyler, that isn't altogether remarkable. I mean, my word. I, I pass by street musicians all the time. You know, that just, it happens. If you've ever been to a major metropolitan city that has underground transportation, sometimes you see that, you just pass by. But here's the thing. It's unbelievably remarkable when you consider who it was, what he played, and on what instrument he played it. For that nameless individual that was in that substation was the greatest violin virtuoso of his day, a man named Joshua Bell. He was in town to play for the Library of Congress. And the instrument upon which he played was considered widely one of the most priceless instruments money can buy, a $3.5 million violin called the Gibson Stradivarius. And he played what musicians widely regard to be one of the greatest solo violin compositions ever. It's by Bach. I can't pronounce the name, and I didn't recognize the song. But it was apparently an impressive piece. And nobody noticed. What a powerful illustration that all too often we can be in the presence of greatness and miss it completely. You know, looks really can be deceiving, and that's why your mama taught you to never judge a book by its cover. But the truth is we do, all the time. We've somehow fallen victim to believing that all that glitters is gold. Consequently, we live by this maxim that we call great what looks great. If something looks great to you, then by definition it must be, which is why we call beautiful that which is just outwardly beautiful. Even if it's fake, even if it's manufactured, we'll call it beautiful. That's why we call successful that which we can see to be successful. Typically that means material possessions. And consequently it means for us that we who call great that which looks great tend to think that to be great we got to look great. And so we live in what some have called the land of Ur. And that is, how many of you find yourself privately thinking, well, you know, yeah, he's taller, but I'm stronger. Got a bigger house, but I got a nicer car. She may be prettier, but I'm smarter. He may be funnier, but I'm cooler. We down spiral into this wicked game of comparison, buying the lie that all that glitters is gold. And as Shakespeare of old said, and you've heard time and again, the hard truth that we need to swallow today is all that glitters is not gold. Amen. That greatness in God's eyes is not what you may think. He tells us this as old as the Old Testament. Do you remember 
when they were looking for a king, God famously said in 1 Samuel 16 that man looks at the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. And he gives us a finer point in our text today. And he explains what he means when he says, I look within. Today, we're going to see Jesus explain to us that greatness in God's eyes won't look great to your eyes. It's not going to. Now, on the one hand, that shouldn't surprise us. If you've been at Hickory Grove for any amount of time, if you are a student of the Bible, on the one hand, it really shouldn't surprise you because you know time and again the Bible seals this truth to our soul that in God's economy, the math doesn't work the same way it does in our economy. That His kingdom is really an upside-down kingdom, is it not? That's why He says crazy upside-down things like death is gain. That's why He says things like Weakness is power. That's why he says crazy things like poverty in spirit is in truth riches. Or to give is really to receive. Or enemies are the type of people you need to love. Or leaders are actually servants. We shouldn't be surprised that greatness in God's eyes isn't going to look great in our eyes. But nevertheless, have you found it to be true that it still does surprise you? We're like those disciples, and we see it in verse 32. They had heard this before. The Scripture actually infers for us that when he was teaching, he had kept on teaching this. This is not the first time he taught that something like this was true. They, they knew this truth, and yet they, they didn't get it. It's like it just kept hitting them and falling away. They, they, weren't, they were trusting their eyes and not trusting what they were told. It's like the pilots. I'm not one, but... I've studied enough to know that one great enemy of aviation is that a pilot can get disoriented easily in adverse weather conditions. If it's particularly dark and stormy, cloudy, and they're not trusting their instruments or they lose their instruments, they can get so spatially disoriented that they can think they're climbing when in fact they're descending. And many, many accidents have occurred throughout the ages from pilots wrongly thinking they're going one direction when in fact they're going another. And that's a lot like us where we get disoriented and we don't trust the instrument panel, so to speak, that the Lord has given us and we do what's right in our own eyes. Like the, ju- uh, the writer of Judges of Old said, it's the essence of sin, doing what's right in our own eyes. We start thinking that greatness is what our our eyes can behold. And so Jesus takes the disciples and we to school. In this text, we're going to see Jesus basically pull the disciples away. Verses 30 and 31 illustrate for us that it was just he and the disciples descending from the mount down to Capernaum. And like a school teacher taking his kids to school, Jesus uh, gives these disciples three lessons that I want to seal to your soul today. And the first thing, the first lesson I want you to note It was kind of like the teacher that on the school bus on the field trip, she doesn't wait to get to the destination and start teaching. She decides to give a little lecture in the bus on the microphone. Jesus gives his first lesson on the journey down to Capernaum. And I want you to notice with me, just look, if you will, at verse 30. It says, they went on from there, and from there is Mount Hebron where the transfiguration had happened, and they passed through Galilee. And he didn't want anybody to know this because... He was teaching his disciples. He wanted his disciples to have some time of preparation with him. And in verse 31, it says he was teaching. 
The way that is written in the original Greek tells us that this was not the first time he had taught this. And we know that for a fact because he actually says this very thing in chapter 8. He teaches them yet again that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they're going to kill him. And when he's killed after three days, he's going to rise. Jesus is in essence taking the disciples and bringing them back down to earth. They were riding high. They had just watched their Messiah be transfigured before them on the mountaintop, heal miraculously, and they were feeling pretty good. They were in the inner circle, and they were going back to Jerusalem thinking, Jesus is going to kick in the doors to the old city, and He is going to rule and reign as the political Messiah they longed for. And so Jesus, in His loving way, brings them back down to earth and reminds them that what's about to happen is not what they would have ever anticipated or chosen. He says the Son of Man is going to die. He'll be delivered. In fact, that phrase, be delivered, is interesting. It's the first time he says it. Now, who does the delivering? Who actually delivers the Son of Man into the hands of men? Some of you might be thinking initially, well, Kyler, I I feel like the Jews did. Uh, Maybe Judas in particular, he betrays him. Uh, Maybe you could even say Pilate. He kind of delivers them, and that's true. But, you know, the Bible actually suggests for us in multiple places that underneath the hand of men is the hidden hand of God. And in the final analysis, it was God Himself who was delivering Jesus to be betrayed. And we know this because, for example, mark in your margin, Acts 2 and verse 23 which reminds us that Jesus was handed over by God's deliberate plan. God did the handing over, and the disciples just could not wrap their minds around this. It defied all of their sense and sensibility to think that this is what would happen to their Lord. Have you ever had a lesson in school that just doesn't make sense, it defies all logic to you? I remember the first time in school I was taught the metric system. Now, I, like all the rest of you, was raised in what's called the imperial system, where you just naturally assume, yeah, a foot is 12 inches and a mile is 5,280 feet. Doesn't make a lick of sense, but that is what it is until you discover there is this ingenious system of weights and measures called the metric system that's all built on hundreds. And you're wondering, who on earth made this imperial system up? There is no logic to it. Why is it that 2,000 pounds equals a ton, but there is no such thing for 1,000 pounds? There's no explanation for it at all. Defies all of your sense, all of your sensibility, and the disciples are sitting here receiving this first lesson from the Lord and thinking, well, this defies all of our understanding of God's goodness. How could a good God actually deliver His chosen one over? defies all of their sense of greatness because they're expecting this Messiah to be a political Messiah, the Savior of the civil uh, order. They, they wanted Jesus to actually rule and reign over Rome. And Jesus is telling them that I'm going to die. He was sealing the first lesson that we must all chew on today. You see, greatness in God's eyes won't look great to your eyes because it sacrifices what none should. Greatness in God's economy is marked 
by sacrifice. And not just mere sacrifice. All of us sacrifice to one degree or another. It's the type of sacrifice that you wouldn't think anybody should do. So I'm not just talking about dad sacrificing at work or mom sacrificing at home. I'm talking about a type of seemingly unjust sacrifice, unacceptable sacrifice, the type that makes you shirk and think, this, for real? This doesn't seem right. And that is the very sacrifice that Jesus was prophesying. It was perplexing to them. Nevertheless, it was to come. For in this simple first lesson of our Lord is the part and parcel, the sum and substance of the faith. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was going to be delivered by God Himself. That's the first thing you need to know, that God did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. He did it. He sent Jesus. For God so loved the world that He gave Jesus. Jesus was not a cosmic victim. He was one that was deliberately sent by God for this chief purpose, to be killed, which means to die in your place. We call that substitutionary atonement. It's a technical way of saying Jesus took your place by taking your punishment so that you would not have to be punished for your sin. He was sent by God, delivered by God to be killed, and if he had stayed dead and buried, he would be but a footnote in the, footnote in the ash heap of history. But praise God, his prophecy at the end of verse 31, it came true. He will three days later rise. And indeed he did, which is why we as believers are so fixated on Easter, Resurrection Sunday, because it was in that moment we learned that the atonement that Jesus made on the cross was accepted by God. God raised Jesus from the dead to prove to all creation, I accept his perfect sacrifice. He was indeed the last sacrifice once for all for sin so that you and I can at last taste freedom, forgiveness from our sins. This is, in other words, the inexplicable portrait of greatness. It's not going to look great in your eyes, but greatness in God's eyes never does. First mark it down. His first lesson is that it sacrifices as none should. But there is a second lesson that Jesus gives us, and he finally get off the school bus, and we come into the classroom. Verse 33 tells us the classroom is a house in Capernaum. We're not exactly sure whose house. It is in all likelihood Peter's house, for Jesus has been here before. And look with me, if you will, at verse 33. He, he comes to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asks the disciples. Now remember, whenever Jesus asks, he's messing with them, because he knows what they were doing. He is not curious. He is making a point. He's teaching. He asked them, what were you all discussing on the way? Well, evidently, the disciples had been chattering on that long foot journey from the Mount Hebron area down to uh, Capernaum. And the disciples are silent, verse 34 says. That's what you call a silent confession. Amen. You ever had a kid... You say, what were you doing? And he just kind of gets all clammy quiet and stares at you. Guilty as charged. They knew they were wrong. And it says they were arguing with one another. Now, before I read the next word, remember what Jesus had just said. He had just told them with utmost humility that he is about to be slaughtered. And evidently, one minute later, the disciples started to argue 
about which one of them are going to be the greatest? What on earth? What a sick juxtaposition between the humility of Christ and the hubris of these men. It's astounding to see this. They were arguing about, well, which one of us is going to be the greatest? And Jesus, in a most amazing way, doesn't just slap them on the hand and say, you know what, y'all shouldn't worry about this. What's really interesting about this text is Jesus actually answers them and says, do you want to be the greatest? I'll tell you how to be the greatest. Which should immediately remind us that what Jesus is rejecting is not greatness in and of itself. It's our definition of greatness. He is, in other words, redefining it for us. Y'all ever had one of those words that you've just misused time and again in your life only to embarrassingly recognize that, well, my word, I didn't know that that's what that word meant. Hear somebody say the word irregardless. Folks, that is not a word. (laughs) Or you heard a politician talk about his penultimate plan, which sounds like a really cool way of saying my big plan, except penultimate means my second to last plan. If you go look it up in the dictionary. Jesus is redefining these words for these people. You ever had a teenager tell you, I'm literally starving? That's not what literally means. Jesus is redefining greatness for us, and he confronts us with our definition. And the hard truth is, most of us have bought the lie of Satan. That greatness is power, prestige, position, possessions, privilege. And Jesus disabuses us of that notion. He calls the lie of Satan what it is, a lie. And he says, let me show you what true greatness is. And the greatness he's about to describe for us in verse 35 is stunning. He says, if anyone would be first, he should be last of all and servant of all. Now, what is Jesus saying? Is he saying you should aim to be the last person picked in dodgeball? Is he celebrating what often we see in society as kind of a a laziness? You know, I don't really care because I want to be humble. I think we all recognize this. It's painfully obvious, but just by way of reminder, he is not celebrating laziness or laxity. It's humility that he's pointing out. He's not just celebrating weakness for weakness sake, he's celebrating meekness. In other words, Jesus is not saying there's somehow virtue in you being the least skilled. What he's saying is there is enormous virtue when you are the most skilled, when you have every ability in the world to be first, every right to be first, and you cede that right. You step back and you say, though I can, I won't, for I will give it to another. There is, in other words, this most alluring picture of humility we find in Jesus' definition of greatness. And so take this second lesson from our Lord and let it pierce your soul as it did mine this week. Greatness in God's eyes is not going to look great in your eyes. On the one hand, it sacrifices as none should. But on the other hand, I want you to see it serves as none would. That's what a great person in God's eyes does. They serve where most people 
wouldn't want to serve. And I just want to attest that there are unsung heroes in this room and in our culture that we ought to regard as the greatest in God's eyes. There are people like nursery workers. The greatest in this congregation are downstairs right now on the basement level. There's usually roughly 30, 40 to 50 different members of our church, many of which don't even have children down there, serving the nursery so that a great many moms and dads can get a 30 to 45 minute break from them. There's greatness in that service. There is greatness demonstrated in somebody like your sanitation worker. Do you realize there is a nameless guy that comes to your driveway once a week that you probably don't know his name, never think about him, but if he stopped showing up, you would be in a jam? There is greatness, Jesus says there. Some of the greatest heroes unsung in our society are our first responders, those who serve in our military, those who teach on the front lines in our classrooms. Do you recognize that at Hickory Grove... You know my name, you know Clint's name, you probably know all the pastor's names, but there are a couple guys here that have been working here for years that make this church beautiful and clean. You realize that it's not, I'm not vacuuming. There is a dear brother named Augustine Granillo who has been working here since 2005, one of the kindest, hardest working guys you'll ever meet, an unsung hero in this church. There is a brother that most of you know terribly well, Joseph Young, who has been working at Hickory Grove since the early 1990s, serving in a thankless role so that we enjoy a beautiful building to worship in. My friends, have you let the weird logic of Jesus sink into your soul that if you want to be first, you must be last of all? And the word servant is diakonos, which literally means serve tables or wash feet. It is the lowest of the low. You've got to get low if you want to get high. Let that lesson be sealed to your soul and let this test haunt you tonight. Do you want to know what the litmus test is of a servant? It's how you respond when you're treated like one. Test yourself. How many of you folks serve to be seen? How often have I craved to be praised? Do you resent being unrecognized? Oh, let the Lord's logic just recalibrate your mind and heart today. Greatness in God's eyes won't look great to your eyes. It sacrifices as none should. It serves as none would. Thirdly and finally, I want to give you one final lesson we learned from our Lord. Let me put it this way. It sees as none could. And I want you to see why Beginning in verse 36, Jesus does what most good teachers do. He presents an object lesson, an illustration. Don't we all like illustrations? I mean, most of us grown adults still like a good picture in a book, don't we not? That's why most of us would prefer to watch TV or a documentary than to read a book. We like a good object lesson. And Jesus lovingly, graciously grants us one beginning in verse 36. It says he takes a child. We know it's a male child because he says he This child was probably Peter's child. 
We're not exactly sure, but there's a good guess to be made that it was Peter's child. It says he takes him, he puts the child in the midst of him, he even pulls him up in his hands, Peter says, and then he says a strange statement. It's strange because this does not register with people in America today. We have an opinion of children that was different than then. Jesus' words are, if any man receives one such child in my name, he receives me. Some of you are thinking, well, that doesn't sound particularly radical. I love a kid. If a little kid ran up on stage right now, I'd hug the child. I love a child. Most of us do. You've got to remind yourself that in this culture, children were not as desirable as they are in our culture. Children were actually viewed as a drag on the home. They weren't producing output to help the family eat and survive. They just consumed resources. They were very dependent, weak. The mortality rate was so high that children often didn't live past the age of 12. And so they were just viewed as a liability largely until they reached that age where they could largely help sustain themselves. And so Jesus, when he took this child, he was basically giving us this great object lesson that if you want to be a servant of all, that means you need to be a servant of the most insignificant least of these. That's what a child was. It was not a beautiful picture. It was a picture of, well, it's easy to serve people that I can get something back from. It's a lot harder to serve people that I'm not going to get any thanks from. And by the way, children tend to be thankless. Most children just consume and consume and receive and receive, and they do so taking it for granted because they've been conditioned to think that this is mom and dad's job. It can be a thankless job, often being a parent. And Jesus is saying, this is the type of person that you need to see, I say great people serve. If you want to be great, you've got to go after the most insignificant. He is, in other words, calling out the sin that none of us like to talk about. There is one great sin that permeates the pews of America that we almost never discuss. James puts a finer point on it in James 2, beginning in verse 1. We call it the sin of of partiality. I want to read to you James' words on this sin and let them just pierce your soul and may they convict you as they did me. James 2 and verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, if you pay attention to the one who has the fine clothing and you say, sit here in this good place, but you say to the poor man, man, you go stand over there. You sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Jesus and James in one accord are waking us up to recognize that the sin of partiality is poisonous. That the fruits of favoritism will poison a congregation. Oh, may we hear his third and final lesson to us that if we are to be great in God's eyes, we must see others as nobody else tends to see others. We need to see the insignificant as significant and the significant as insignificant. Let's start with the latter. We need God to help scrub our soul from viewing significant people as the ones who are solely worth our attention. Oh God, would you help me see that the most significant amongst us is in truth insignificant. Who's the most, insig who's the most significant person in this room? 
it would probably be the big I, you and me in our own minds and hearts, is it not? And when you sit under Jesus' teaching, it should open your eyes to see who you are and who he is. Oh God, would you help me decrease that you might increase. Help me to see myself as I really am, that I might all the more clearly see you to be who you really are. Lord, help me not to have the sin of partiality to where I show preference to those who can give me something in return. Give me eyes to see the insignificant as significant. The poor, the impaired, the powerless. Lord, give me an eye and a mind and a heart for them, for greatness in God's eyes. It's not going to look great in your eyes. It sacrifices as none should. It serves as none would. Folks, it sees as none could. But praise God. Praise God. Praise God. That greatness in His eyes doesn't look great in our eyes. Because he saw you as none could. And he served you as none would. By sacrificing for you as none should. Do you realize that God's economy is a good one? Though it might make no lick of sense to you, it is in this economy that you alone could be saved. In your economy, your sins are many. Your debt is unpayable. In God's economy, your sins are wiped clean. Your debt is finished, paid, nailed to the cross. It is no more. In God's economy, we are saved by the lamb slain. In man's economy, we are desperately trying to be saved by the next political Messiah. Praise God that He views greatness in a way you and I do not. And so may God so move in my heart, in yours, and all of us at Hickory Grove that we would in one accord learn till the day we die that by paradox, the way up is the way down. That to be low is to be high. That to give is to receive. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to be last is to be first. Dear church, don't forget, all that glitters is not gold. Would you join me as we pray? And as we pray, I want to ask the Lord to so convict your heart and mine that we would confess before him our lust for greatness. Oh God, forgive me. Cry out now. Ask the Lord to forgive you. Pray that he would open your eyes anew to see the wonder of his sacrifice. It's something he should not have done. That should make your mouth fall agape. Ask the Lord to remind you anew that He has served you as nobody else would. That should make you fall to your knees. Ask the Lord to impress upon you anew that He saw you as nobody else could. That should make you cry out in praise forevermore. Because He saw the real you and it was that version of you that He came to save.
And so in one accord, we're going to cry out to this great God who has revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the ultimate example of greatness, and plead that God would so move in our lives that we would be slowly transformed into his image and thus demonstrate to a watching world that greatness in God's eyes, it may not look great in your eyes, but keep watching for one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that you didn't see greatness when it was staring you in the face. Father in heaven, I'm asking by the power of your spirit and to the glory of Jesus to so move in this room that our eyes would be opened anew to see greatness as you see it, to see ourselves as you see us. Lord, I'm praying that you would impress upon us anew the wonder of your sacrifice and your service to us. And I pray for those who hear my voice and know that they have not tasted and seen that you are good. They know that they know that they are not going to be spending forever with you. They know that they don't know you. I pray this moment that you would do what I cannot and that is open their blind eyes to see you, to savor you, to be saved. Spirit, come and do just this. And as we sing, Lord, I pray that you would fill every mouth with the praise that is due your name. And I pray this in Jesus' name.